0: This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between.
1: Hello, Top Croppers, and welcome to the fourth episode of our Inputs podcast coverage of the Plant Health Summit. My name is Alex Bernard, Associate Editor for Top Crop Manager magazine. The Plant Health Summit was a conference run by Top Crop Manager at TCU Place in Saskatoon on February 25th and 26th. The summit featured presentations on a variety of topics, from disease management and updates on club root and aphanomyces root rot, to insect pest control, to the future of farming with smart technology and plant growth regulators. This series will include conversations with the presenters about their topic and the central message growers and agronomists can take away and use in their work. Our fourth episode features Tyler Whist, a field crop entomologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Saskatoon, and John Govlosky, an entomologist with Manitoba Agriculture and Resource Development. Whist presented on beneficial insects, parasitoids and predators, and how to use them to control insect pest populations in crops. Govlosky presented on neonicotinoids, the issues surrounding their use, the regulatory reviews that three are under, and how to use them responsibly. This episode also features Stephanie Gordon, former associate editor for Top Crop Manager and current editor for three of Top Crop's sister publications, interviewing Tyler Whist. Enjoy.
2: So I'm working on wheat midge and this is one of the big bads in wheat. I would say it is the big bad in wheat. It's been kind of suppressed for the last little while, but if you get 130 million dollars in yield losses like we did in the 1990s, that's why you know it's a big bad. And so Egg Canada's thrown a lot of research at it. Like back when the wheat midge first reared its ugly orange head, they had six or seven full-time research scientists working on this problem. And they found that it actually had a really huge um, crop loss. So there's our 130 million. At the same time, we had over 500,000 acres still sprayed. We still got the crop loss. And so Ian Wise and uh, Marge Smith, Two of the scientists who were working on this called this the most serious insect pest of spring wheat in Western Canada. So thank goodness for SM1. But let's define what a parasitoid is first, because I'm now going to talk about a parasitoid. This is a parasite, but it kills its host. So a good parasite doesn't kill its host but a parasitoid does. And so it's an opportunity here where the female, she finds the host and then it's her offspring, the larva, that winds up killing it. So now you guys know what a parasitoid is? Hey, wheat midge has a parasitoid. So this is Macroglenes penetrans and it introduced itself. And so we didn't have to go out there and find it and bring it in. It came in probably with the second introduction of wheat midge. So it is little, it is black, and it goes after eggs and potentially first instar larvae of the wheat midge. Now, you don't get immediate kill with this one. This one goes into the wheat midge, and it doesn't kill the wheat midge until the following year. So wheat midge overwinters as a third instar in a cocoon, and when it goes to pupate, instead of getting a wheat midge, you'll get one of these Macroglenes penetrans coming out. So instead of getting a fly, you get a wasp. And they can reduce about 40% of your overwintering population of wheat midge. Now, this is why you don't want to spray about a week after wheat midge has come out. So if you're a little bit late, go to your field, take a sweep net, and you can find these guys. They're little black specks running around. During the daytime, you'll see them in your sweep net. And remember that last year's wheat field is probably this year's canola field. So it's another reason to stay out of flowering canola with your sprayer because you might be taking care of macro as you're spraying your canola and so they will come out in last year's wheat field they'll nectar in the canola and then they will move into wheat to go try to take care of the wheat midge for you. So up in the Peace River region we started studying this and we actually had fields with pretty much hundred percent parasitism by this parasitoid on wheat midge so it's really good. Owen Olford said that The pesticide savings alone, on just having this parasitoid around, were $200 million. So this parasitoid is worth $200 million during an outbreak year. Hey there, I'm Tyler West. I'm a field crop entomologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Saskatoon Research and Development Centre.
3: You work on pests. Are there any pests that you think producers should worry about in 2020?
2: So I've been talking about pests from 2019. Is it's hard to predict the future with insect pests. Uh, sounds like we might be looking at grasshoppers, and the ones up north we're finding they have a two-year life cycle. So, Dave from Meadow Lake assures me that uh, we're coming into year two of that life cycle. What I was talking about was wheathead armyworm that had kind of reared its ugly little head in 2019, and uh, Peritrechus convivus, which is sort of a new slash old pest that we're really not sure why it becomes a pest. So you can have millions in your field, and you might never find them feeding on your crops. And then all of a sudden, in another field, they start feeding on crops, and we really don't know why.
3: I guess they're pests for a reason, because they're pests, they bug you. Um, (laughs) They bug
2: the crops, that's for sure.
3: (laughs) But let's talk about the other side of your presentation, which was the beneficials you know, briefly explain beneficials and do you have maybe like kind of top beneficials that producers should be aware of?
2: Mm. So when we're talking about beneficials, we're talking about beneficial insects. So this is an insect that benefits humans. So we put that label on them. They don't really, you know, they're not really beneficial on their own, but when they do something that's good for humans, then they're beneficial. So we're talking about things that are eating the pest insects. So those are things like predators and parasitoids. So I talked quite a bit about parasitoids and this is the uh, offspring. Often it's a, a parasitic wasp that winds up killing its host. So we talked about aphids and their parasitoids and also wheathead armyworm and their parasitoids and how these can help to control big outbreaks of pests. Now in terms of predators I mean, my favorite is the green lice wing because it's got these huge mandibles and it just sucks the life out of insects. But in terms of the two that are probably going to have the biggest impact on farmers' fields, lady beetles. Lady beetles are a great generalist pest. Are a great generalist pest destroyer let's say they love aphids and so if you've got lady beetles in your field you should scout for aphids but they're the ones that can actually control aphid populations and keep those populations from becoming damaging in your fields running around on the ground we have ground beetles so there are a host of ground beetles down there that they like hiding during the daytime so we often don't really see them But they can rip apart Bertha armyworms they will eat wheat midge cocoons in the ground and they're doing a lot of pest suppression that is just going unrecognized in a lot of fields.
3: Mm -hmm. And in your presentation you talked about if you see beneficials that's a cue that you should be scouting for whatever they're eating whatever their food is so if you're out in the field How can you increase the presence of beneficials? Is there anything on the management side that a producer can be doing to make sure that the beneficials are happy and they're doing their
2: job? So to increase beneficials in your field. So let's say you're out there and you find a lot of lady beetles in your field. It's probably because there is a food source for them. So mama lady beetle doesn't lay eggs until she has something that her offspring can eat. Now, if you want to increase those things outside of your field, a lot of these parasitic wasps... They're wasps they like to feed on nectar, so flowering plants outside of your field that will allow those parasitic wasps to just come into your field when the pests arrive that's really important also not spraying unless you absolutely have to will preserve those beneficial insects in your field, so providing alternative food for them and uh also providing kind of uh areas that are that go undisturbed so You know, if you've got a corner of your field that just doesn't produce for whatever reason, maybe consider leaving it into some kind of a flowering plant and just leaving it alone. And let those flowering plants bring in the beneficial insects and let that undisturbed ground um, be kind of a breeding ground for those beneficial insects as well.
3: On that, to spray or not to spray, how should a producer know is it best to err on the side of caution and not spray or, you know, how can you know when it's going to be reaching economic thresholds?
2: So if we've got an insect pest that we have a good economic threshold for, use those economic thresholds. If you're getting close to the threshold, keep monitoring, keep monitoring. If you hit those thresholds, then I'm not saying don't spray, you go ahead and you got to pre- preserve your yield when you need to. But if you aren't anywhere near an economic threshold, I would say just let those insects be. Our threshold for cereal aphids, and this plant here, is exhibiting our threshold for one weed head. Remember, you've got to count a bunch of them, and it is 12 to 15 aphids per head, but that's an average. So if you have one head with 60 and you have like 20 heads with zero, you are not at your threshold yet. So you need to get out there and count 50 to 100 heads per field and then take the average. So, right now we use what's called a conventional action threshold. So that is, I need to get on my sprayer and spray these guys before they get to that economic threshold of 12 to 15 per head. So we've been using what's called a dynamic action threshold that actually takes into account the beneficial insects in the field. And so it uses an equation that uses the number of aphids eaten by these things and takes out those aphids.
3: We had mentioned this before about how some producers really care about seeing good-looking fields but sometimes when it comes to I guess your risk tolerance you do have some room to kind of push it against the threshold do you have any advice for a producer that might be anxious that if they don't kind of spray when they can that it's gonna blow beyond the economic threshold and then at that point it's kind of too late
2: yeah no that's a touchy question for sure is Farmers have a lot of ground to cover. Their agronomists have a lot of ground to cover. So, you know, I'm not going to jump into that one, I would say. If you're getting close to your economic threshold, that's when you need to be worried. If, if you're nowhere near your economic threshold, if your crop is getting close to senescence as well, then you're also out of the danger zone. For example, cereal aphids pass the soft dough stage in wheat, have no effect on your yield anymore, so be aware of your crop staging as well um, when you're using your economic thresholds.
3: Mm -hmm. And one resource that you had mentioned in your presentation was the aphids app. What is it useful for?
2: So we have uh, put out what's called the Cereal Aphid Manager app. And it is for scouting cereal aphids in your field, so it will help you count the cereal aphids, but it also runs the number that you have in your field against the current economic thresholds and it will also keep track of what your aphid populations are. So if you come back next week you'll have a record of what was there the past week and you can look at a little graph in the app and it will show you are my aphid populations increasing? That's when you need to be a bit worried or are they decreasing? So while you're using the Cereal Aphid Manager and you're counting the number of aphids per head. You can also count the beneficial insects in your field and it uses a dynamic action threshold that takes into account the action of those beneficial insects on suppressing the aphid population. So you can use that for wheat, barley, and oats right now because we've got good economic thresholds for those crops.
3: And what do you think are some misconceptions producers or agronomists or researchers might have when it comes to the topic of beneficials?
2: misconceptions about beneficials. So the misconceptions I was trying to clear up today was what is a beneficial insect and what do they look like? Because that's that's the first thing. So we've got a bunch of insects in the field. Are they a beneficial insect or are they a pest insect? And so my, I felt my duty today was to educate everyone on what these beneficial insects actually look like
3: yeah and you did in your presentation show a bunch of photos and you asked the audience to kind of guess about like what they were granted it was right after lunch so people were kind of sluggish you know pun intended but (laughs) i think for a lot of people you know they don't they're not they might not be sure of the answer so they don't want to call it out but how could someone if they had wanted to become more familiar with beneficials and what they should be looking for are there resources where someone can go to to learn more and to kind of better familiarize with, you know, what are really the differences between two beneficials, maybe.
2: I'm glad you asked that question. So I showed a slide (laughs) in my presentation of our Agriculture Canada, I call it hashtag AAFC bug book, because that works better than the really long name. But what that book has, we put it out in 2015 in hard copy and we're on edition number three already but what it's got is it's front loaded with all the pest insects that we get in Western Canada and then it's back loaded with all the beneficial insects that are dealing with those pest insects and so full color glossy images and we've got descriptions of the life stages there are even timings for when you might find those insects in your field so it's a great resource if you don't have a hard copy You can download it onto your tablet. It's about seven megabytes in size. You can find it on the Ag Canada website, but you can also find it on the Prairie Pest Network Monitoring Blog, which is another great resource for finding out about both pest and beneficial insects.
3: This is going to sound like a massive pitch for all these things, but um, I will make sure that all these resources are listed in our show notes for anyone interested in, I guess, following up. On those um, resources, but if you could really boil it down to what's one thing a farmer or agronomist can take away from your presentation here today to better their practices on the farm, what would you say it is?
2: Ooh, one takeaway. Well, yeah, just the one. <laughs> well, let's say there are plenty of resources out there. If you're on social media, you can follow at Field Heroes, and we have information there on the beneficial insects that are in your field so i would say get connected get those resources and that's my biggest takeaway from today that and lady beetles are great in your field
3: yeah and i guess it's just about learning more about what you don't know so you can benefit from the beneficials, essentially is what you're saying.
2: I like that. Yep. Benefiting from the beneficials.
3: Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. You're free to use it. Um, <laughs> but let's switch it to something a bit more broad in general. So, you know, given the climate of agriculture now, do you feel like there there, there is something that um, farmers should know or focus on learning more about given agriculture today? Is there something that you want to see producers learn more about or know about?
2: I would say just keep your curiosity level up. You want to uh, know about insects, the resources are there. Um, Most of us scientists are happy to answer your questions as well. So we're here for the public good.
3: And for you yourself, you shared a bunch of different bug videos. Do you have a favorite pest and a favorite beneficial?
2: So my favorite pest is probably going to be aphids of all different kinds. Why? They have crazy life cycles and their populations build up so fast and my favorite beneficial right now is the green lacewing, just for its habit of piercing and sucking and leaving behind dead little aphid bodies
3: that's very graphic that's great well thank you
2: <laughs> thank you very much so before you get all excited about wasps well, you should be excited about wasps. Not all little wasps are what we would term beneficial. So when it goes after something like an aphid that we hate, then it's beneficial. If it goes after something like a fuzzy little alfalfa leaf cutting bee that we love, now it's not beneficial. So pteromalis venustus is a little wasp that is not beneficial. So when we like parasitoids, so this is a good parasitoid, it's made an aphid mummy, so we're happy about this one here. These other two wasps come along and they will lay an egg into the parasitoid that's inside the mummy. This is called a hyperparasitoid. So we've got wasps that attack the wasp inside the aphid and these guys are not our friends. So Dendrocerus bicolor, suspensus, you are not beneficial.
0: Celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, ANL Canada Laboratories is an innovative, research-driven technology company focused on sustainable development. Through leading expertise, modern laboratory facilities, and a strong customer focus, ANL serves a wide range of industries, including agriculture, environmental, food, and pharma globally. ANL's Vitellus Soil Health Test is the next-generation soil health test and recommendations package used by farmers and crop consultants across Canada to make more informed decisions on their application of nutrients and on managing and improving their soil. To learn more, check out alcanada.com and reach out to your local ANL rep.
4: I like insects, and as Tyler alluded to, there's a lot of good insects out there as well and not just the predators and parasites that Tyler showed. There's pollinators that we need to take into consideration. And if you're a fisherman or a bird watcher, if you don't have things like mayflies, caddisflies, midge, you will not have walleye, pike, and a lot of other fish. So insects have many, many functions. And our job in agriculture, as agronomists, as farmers, we need to grow healthy crops, and we need to do it in the most responsible way. And Just like some of the products that were around when I first started, neonics have recently come under a lot of scrutiny and are very controversial. Now, neonics belong to a group of chemistry. It's called Group 4A. If you're familiar with insecticides, there's 32 different groups right now. Group 4A is your neonics. They're nerve poisons, essentially. And there's different ways you can apply neonics. There's foliar sprays which are used a lot in the horticulture industry. At least they were used quite a bit. And then there's seed treatments, which are what we use mainly here in the West. So Canadian prairies versus Eastern Canada, neonics are used very differently. I want to talk a little bit about neonics themselves and some of their characteristics. First of all, one of the things that makes them really good insecticides is they're very highly toxic to insects. So that's a good thing because that's what we're trying to do is kill insects with them. Also, they're of low toxicity to vertebrates, also good, means less risk to you. And also, they're systemic. They move in the xylem. So some things are systemic in the phloem. So you spray dimethoate on your plants, it moves through the phloem, gets all over the plant. In the case of neonics, they move in the xylem, which means they can be very useful as seed treatments because xylem is moving from the soil up through the plant, through all the leaves, So when you put a seed treatment on, it does move through your plant to the leaves. Now, what does happen is when it's highly concentrated early on after germination, you're getting a lot of neonic into those new leaves. As older leaves form, you get less and less neonic until eventually it's not going to do its job anymore. But that's basically the way the neonics function as seed treatments. And they are persistent, too. And persistence can have a good and a bad side to it. On the good side, they hang around long enough to do the job. On the bad side, if they're too persistent, they end up where you don't want them to end up.
1: It's Alex Bernard, here with Top Crop Manager at the Plant Health Summit, and I'm here
4: with... John Gavlosky, entomologist with Manitoba Agriculture and Resource Development.
1: So he just gave a presentation on neonicotinoids, so I'm sure most people know this, but what are neonicotinoids?
4: So neonicotinoids, they're a group of insecticides, So insecticides are broken down to 32 different groups, and neonicotinoids are what we call group 4A. So they're a specific group, and they're essentially nerve toxins.
1: You mentioned in your presentation that there were three particularly contentious varieties. What were they?
4: So yeah, there's several neonicotinoid insecticides. There are three that are commonly used in agriculture in Canada, and those are imidacloprid, which... People here might recognize as raxol or gaucho, or if you're a potato grower, admire. There's thiamethoxame, which people would recognize as cruiser. If you're growing canola, that would be helix. And the third one is something called clothianidine, which growers in the prairies would recognize as being prosper or poncho or one of those products.
1: Okay. So I know those three are under review currently. So what would be the status of that review?
4: So there's different types of reviews. And currently imidacloprid is up for what they call cyclical review, where every so many years you review a product. So that review has been completed. There's been a proposed decision. Now, being a proposed decision it doesn't mean it's final. There's a comment period, and that's essentially what we're in for the imidacloprid full review. And for the other two, clothianidine and thiamethoxame, what's happening there is something called a special review. And this is an aquatic special review. And the reason they're doing that one is because with metacloprid, what they did find was that there were high levels in aquatic systems that could potentially be impacting aquatic life. And so because of that, they're now doing a special aquatic review for the other two neonicotinoids. They do have a proposed decision in both of these reviews. And both of the reviews are proposing essentially the phase out of outdoor uses of these products But again, these are proposed decisions right now. There's been a lot of feedback to these, and we expect final decisions probably in the fall of 2020.
1: Okay. Now, I think most people hear about neonics in regards to pollinators and their decimation. Why would an aquatic review be more necessary than another type of review?
4: So yeah, there's really two main big issues that have followed the neonics. The pollinator issue is a very separate issue from the aquatic issue. And it came about because people were noticing bee levels declining and people did notice some fairly significant bee kills. And there were cases where these bee kills could be traced to the use of neonics. In some of the cases, it was because seed treatments were being used and because of the type of equipment they were using and some of the lubricants they were using in with the treated seed, you had these clouds of insecticide-laced dust being blown around from the cedars, and they did result in some significant bee kills. The pollinator review was done. There were no phase-outs to seed treatments as a result of that review. There were some discontinuations of some foliar uses, which affected more the horticulture industry. But as far as seed treatments go, Pollinator review was done and it was decided there were ways of managing this insecticide-laced dust and this could likely be done so that we don't need to go to the next step and totally phase the products out because of pollinator-related issues.
1: The control measures that people have been taking since that review has been completed and a decision has been made to not phase them out, has that been effective so far?
4: I think it has. One of the steps they're taking is there's a new fluency agent on the market. So this is a a lubricant that people can put in with canola or soybean seeds. So instead of using talc or graphite, which would result in higher levels of neonics in the dust with the fluency agent, you still do get some, but it's less. So that helps. There's greater awareness of the issue the Pest Management Regulatory Agency, they set out a list of best management practices which extension people like myself, we went over this with farmers as much as we could anyway. And I think people are aware now that they need to be doing things to minimize the dust. Some are using deflectors, a lot of them are using the fluency agents. So it's hard to totally eliminate risk to bees but I think there's been acceptable steps taken to at least minimize the risk as far as the pollinator end of it goes and as mentioned some of the foliar spray uses have been discontinued because there was really no other option in that case.
1: And regarding the aquatic organisms issue do you have a prediction of how that will go? I know you mentioned that neonics are highly soluble and that's part of the problem. Can you expand on that a little bit?
4: Yeah, so neonics, one of the things that makes them a good seed treatment is they are very highly water-soluble, so they can get taken up by the plant very easily if there's sufficient moisture. The double-edged sword here is that being highly water-soluble, they also end up in water very easily, and they can be somewhat persistent in the water, which means if you get uh, heavy rain after seeding, they can end up in waterways. And there have been many studies where they've been able to detect neonics in waterways, The big question that is being asked though is how biologically significant is this? Are they at levels that are essentially killing aquatic organisms, or are they at what would be considered more acceptable levels?
1: And I know that you mentioned it happens largely after major precipitation events, so if farmers avoid times when there is likely to be a precipitation event afterwards, will that act as a control measure?
4: It's hard to do when you're you're seeding. Now, for foliar sprays, if you read the label of any of the foliar sprays that are neonicotinoids and many other insecticides, it says not to use following major rain events. The whole reason the special aquatic reviews got going was because they were finding very heavy levels of neonics, mainly imidacloprid in some of the more horticultural producing areas of Ontario, and, and that is likely what was happening. They were being sprayed, and moving into waterways very shortly after they were being sprayed. So that's something that anyone growing potatoes, horticulture crops, they should be trying their best to adhere to. Yeah, don't be putting down something like Admire, alias Sactera, any of those sprays right before a major rain event. Now, for seed treatments, it might be a trickier one because usually there's a lot of things to factor into a seeding date, and you're certainly not going to want to hold off because there's rain forecast and you're worried about the neonics getting into the water. In fact, they might be wanting to do the opposite to get their seed in before it rains so that it can get quick germination, yeah. which is something we suggest for minimizing flea beetle risk. You want quick germination, so...
1: It's a really complex issue. It's a
4: com- <laughs> very complex issue. So why does this matter in the first place? So I mentioned earlier that for there to be good food chains, insects are really important. And in aquatic food chains, there's certain groups that are really good at keeping our cycles going strong. Ephemeroptera—I've so used the big entomology terms. Ephemeroptera is mayflies. So anybody who's a fisherman probably knows what mayflies are. They model lures after these things. Trichoptera is your caddis flies, another very valuable fish food. Diptera, Diptera is things like midges, chironomids, midge larvae, which are very good fish food as well. Now, some people might argue if it kills diptera, that might be good, because mosquitoes are diptera, but so are a lot of other aquatic organisms that wildlife tends to feed on. And those three groups that I just mentioned are all very sensitive to neonicotinoids. One of the standard test organisms, Daphnia, isn't. And fish, amphibians, mollusks, several other groups, it would take higher levels to kill them, and probably what we're seeing in the pulses... And the neonics aren't likely to be killing those organisms. Now, I've got this threshold level of 41 nanograms per liter there. I just want to explain that a little bit. So, biologically, probably having one or two or three parts per billion of neonic in the water likely isn't killing your caddisflies and your mayflies. There's going to be a certain level where things become toxic enough that they're basically killing off your aquatic organisms. And the tricky part is, scientists argue a lot about what those levels are. Now, the organization that is having to decide on what to do with the neonics, that's the PMRA. They have their guidelines. For midacloprid, it's 41 nanograms per liter. For clothianidine, it's 1.5 at a very low level. And thiamethoxame is 26. And so the big question now is, is that 41 really a good benchmark? So you've got all these different benchmarks being proposed by different groups. And this is where it gets really tricky and it's really controversial. And this is one of the things that PMRA, I know, is taking a lot of heat on. Are their guidelines robust enough? So this is a really tricky thing when they're doing these reviews. The other thing we have to take into effect here that I haven't touched on yet, I showed you data showing that we're finding clothianidine in waterways and thiamethoxane. These are all neonics and they're all working on organisms in the same way. So if you had, say, 30 nanograms per liter of thiamethoxane, you're below 41. If you've got 35 of clothianidine, you're below 41. These things work additively. They work on the same site. So if you've got both of them in the same waterway, you're now up to 65. So you probably do have biological effects happening. So that's the other thing that has to be considered when the PMRA is evaluating this data.
1: So what would be the impact of losing neonicotinoids in insect pest control if it were to happen?
4: So if we did lose the neonics totally, in all of our major field crops, there are alternative products. We would have certainly a reduced tool kit, but in no cases would you have an empty tool kit. So in the case of canola, we have a group called the diamides, and so that's products like Lumiderm, Fortens advanced. They would become our major seed treatments. And there's pros and cons. I mentioned how the neonics are really highly water soluble, providing you get some soil moisture, they act quickly. The diamides may not be quite as quick, but they do kill flea beetles quite well. So once they are up into the plant, they can do a very effective job killing the flea beetles. Now, cost might be the other issue. Neonics, compared to some groups of chemistry, are relatively cheap. So whether the cost of canola seed will go up or not, that's another thing that we'd have to look at.
1: What can farmers and agronomists do to improve their crop management practices, whether they're phased out or not, the neonics?
4: So one of the things that we really encourage farmers to think about is, do you need a seed treatment, an insecticide seed treatment on your seed? In the case of the neonics, they were probably being overused in some crops just because the seed companies had it as part of their package. So you bought the seed treated with, say, Cruiser or Raxel or whatever it was, just because that was what the seed company offered. So we're trying to stress to growers, agronomists, and the seed companies, whether it's neonics or any insecticide-treated seed, even if it's diamides or other groups, let's use them when they're needed. Let's not be using them as an insurance thing just in case you have a problem. In the case of wireworms, they have multi-year life cycles in a field and growers often know the fields that have heavy wireworm levels So it's not usually an out of the blue thing. It can be, but often growers will know fields that have greater issues. Target those fields with seed treatments with an insecticide. If there really isn't an insect concern for a field, we probably don't need to be having insecticide-treated seed going down.
1: This is a tricky question because there are a lot of misconceptions about neonics, it seems, but what is one especially egregious one that you would like to correct or just provide more information on?
4: Uh, Probably the question I get the most about neonics is, are they killing the bees? (laughs) And I think people, especially, I don't want to stereotype, but I think in the urban public, people know about neonics. Probably most other agricultural insecticides, people will know very little about. People do know about neonics, and if they do know about them, what they probably at least think they know is that they're killing pollinators. And... I think that's been maybe a little bit overblown. Yes, there have been bee kills due to neonics, but there's a lot of other things that are killing bees as well. I don't think it's fair to suggest that pollinator decline and bee decline is strictly neonic related. Now, there have been times, again, where they were certainly a contributing factor, but once again, a lot of the uses that would have been more harmful to the bees, a lot of the foliar spray uses, have been discontinued. And as far as the seed treatment issues go, there are practices in place to minimize the risk. So, yeah, if there's one area where I think a lot of, I won't say misinformation, but maybe misconcern is in place, I think there certainly are issues with neonics we have to take seriously, but the pollinator issue has probably been getting a lot more attention than it needs to.
1: I think you've essentially covered this, but just in case, is there something that you couldn't fit into your presentation or one thing that you really want farmers to take away from
4: this? I think the one thing I would want farmers to take away from this, and I did put it in my presentation, was neonics are a tool to help us achieve better plant health, and they can be a very valuable tool, and their fate will depend on these two special reviews. Now, assuming we do keep some of their uses. We want to make sure we're using them in a sustainable way. So these continue to be tools in our toolkit. And I see overuse as probably the biggest impediment to us keeping these long term as a sustainable tool in the toolkit. So I would encourage growers, get to know your fields, get to know your pests, get to know where you need insecticide treated seed. And don't just assume that you need to have insecticide treated seed on all your corn, soybeans, cereals, and other crops. There was a talk at the Crop Connect conference in Manitoba a week ago from somebody from Syngenta in the UK. And initially, I thought it was going to be a bit of a downer of a talk about how badly they're doing after the neonics got removed. And he said, certainly with canola, and they've got a species of flea beetle called cabbage stem flea beetle that they're really struggling with without the neonics. But in cereal crops, he said, things really aren't as devastating as they thought it would be. Their big problem there was aphids, because the aphids that have to blow in here overwinter there, and they spread a disease called barley yellow dwarf. And the neonics would provide about six weeks of protection from these aphids. And when they removed the neonics, they were worried that we're gonna get a lot more barley yellow dwarf. He was saying that that's not necessarily what's been happening. They're not really seeing this big rise like they expected. A lot of the growers are starting to use cover crops, reduce tillage, and practices that are actually promoting more predators in the cereal fields, and they're doing it for the whole purpose of promoting predators. They realize they need this. It's a good thing.
1: Thank you again to Tyler Whist and John Govlosky for speaking with Stephanie Gordon and me, and to you for tuning in to Inputs, the Top Crop Manager podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is the fourth in a series providing coverage of the Plant Health Summit. Episodes will be released every two weeks, with the next one coming your way on May 13th. Until then, I wish you the best of luck in managing early pests and a great start to the 2020 growing season.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com podcasts.